You're listening to the Forefront Church Sermon Podcast. Forefront Church is a progressive Christian community more interested in asking good questions than having all the right answers. Thanks for listening. Good morning, Forefront. I'm Sammy, and I am coming to you from the floor of a room in my boyfriend's childhood home, so happy pandemic to all. (laughs) I'm so excited to be giving you the sermon today and to be talking with you about this, Um, but I'd love to introduce myself for those of you who don't know me. So yes, I'm Sammy. I'm currently the co-leader of the Biblical Literacy Small Group, otherwise known as Biblet. Uh, as well as the Brooklyn Heights small group. I also volunteer with the AV team here at Forefront, so sometimes I'm behind the scenes of Sundays. Um, And I also volunteer with the Connection team. Um, And, you know, you might see me as a virtual greeter every now and then. I'm around. Um, But I'm also behind the scenes, so it's okay if you haven't seen me before. And if that's not enough, of an introduction to me. Here's a little bit more, all you need to know. I'm a Hufflepuff. I'm a Gemini. I'm an Enneagram one wing two, for sure. Uh, I'm an INFJ. Any other personality quizzes? I'm I'm also a a mom to four pets. That's a lot of work. Um, And let's see. Uh, I currently work as a life coach, and I'm also a published author. Um, I'll be going back to school this year. Uh, I'll be starting seminary. And I used to work in digital media for about five or six years after college. So, yes, some days I'm really busy, and I'm juggling a lot of things. And some days all I do is play Animal Crossing. That's been most days lately, <laughs> but I, there's something about this introduction that I don't necessarily support. I hesitate to introduce myself with what I do. I'm a doer. There's a doer personality in me for sure. Um, it loves doing and helping and being productive and feeling needed and feeling busy, but can I share something with you and hopefully you can relate. (sighs) I left my full-time job in media because I was incredibly burnt out. For example, uh, during the 2016 presidential election cycle, I worked as a social media manager for a news website. And while it had a different flavor than this current cycle has, for sure, I don't recommend being plugged into Twitter 24-7, especially when that's your job. And another example, the last job I had, um, I also worked in social media, but they were asking a lot of additional tasks and roles from me um, that essentially should have been like maybe at least one or two other jobs. Um, but I wasn't necessarily getting paid for all of that extra work and I was a team of one. So I didn't really have the support or the pay structure in place to somewhat motivate me to keep going. And, you know, during that time, uh, I also wrote and published a book. Uh, it came out in 2018. Um, 
and that took a lot of effort and multitasking as well, which in general I do love, but on top of everything, it was a lot. And I don't share this to sound like I am bragging about how busy I could have been or was, because detailing how busy and tired we are should not be how we measure success. It, it kind of sounds more like it's, it's describing exploitation more than it sounds like success or joy. <laughs> I was really, really spent back then. And, you know, I consider myself to be a creative person, but every day I would be so tired after whatever work entailed for however many hours that I didn't really have any juice left in me to create. So I left. And the fun thing is that it's not like I've been creating much these days. There are a few projects on the back burner that I have not really been attending to because the daily mental strain of the pandemic is incredibly real and heavy. And I totally recognize that some creatives have lost their opportunity to work because venues or institutions have been shut down for various reasons right now. But some of us have like lost that ability because the struggle to get basic stuff done is harder than ever before. The energy around us right now is wild. Like not to get woo woo, but like everything is shifting and crazy right now. So spoiler, don't be hard on yourself. <laughs> but my days right now feel a lot emptier in comparison to when I was overworked and trying to do a million things at once obviously. <laughs> but I end up judging myself and feeling badly about how not productive I am anymore. But why do we feel that constant urge to be doing something? When did our worth start to become measured falsely by our productivity? And why, if you live in New York or some other major city, is the second sentence out of your mouth when you meet someone, so what do you do? I didn't come from a well-to-do family. I would say we were probably lower to middle class for most of my life. Neither of my parents went to college and they never really got to live out those childhood dreams that we all have of, of what we want to be when we grow up. Could you hear my dogs? Because there were dogs running around. Um, my childhood dreams were to be both at the same time a ballerina and a paleontologist. So I'm not saying that we need to pursue all of our childhood dreams, but not everyone gets the chance to. I do have a few friends who also get pressured into careers by their parents to carry on some kind of legacy or tradition. I think about families of doctors or lawyers, and they assume that their children are going to continue on and become that as well. Jobs then can become methods of maintaining class and power systems for certain people as opposed to a chance to express ourselves or pursue and use our preferred skills. The doing has become part of our identity instead of just a set of unique attributes that make us who we are. So I invite you to think about your answer to that question. What do you do? Does your answer start with your main occupation? Does it start with, well, I'd like to call myself a creative profession, but really every day I do 
a job I don't like? <laughs> Does it start with your relationships to other people or pets if you're a caretaker? All of that puts something else as a label ahead of just being ourselves. All of that can get in the way of what we're meant to be doing. But what are we meant to be doing? I hear you ask. <laughs> Were we supposed to be answering some sort of divine calling to work in our dream industry, ideally? That puts so much pressure on us to get it right. It also puts a lot of pressure on whatever relationship you happen to have with God or the divine at the time that you're trying to answer that question. It just sets it up for failure right from the start. So um, a writer from The Atlantic described this current movement that we're feeling right now as workism. Uh, and he equates the pressure to find your passion and work too many hours at it to the drive that leads some people to religion. So in the article, he states, and here's a quote, between 1950 and 2012, annual hours worked per employee fell about 40% in Germany and the Netherlands, but by only 10% in the United States. Americans work longer hours, have shorter vacations, get less in unemployment, disability, and retirement benefits, and retire later than people in comparably rich societies. So, you know, it kind of makes this concept of whatever the American dream is, which is supposed to some sort of like magical transformation where you pull yourself up by your bootstraps to invent something. I don't know. It can drive us into burnout, depression, and fatigue. But what if our lives become more focused on one of the holy directions that the ancient Israelites were given so very long ago, instead of on the myth of upward mobility? Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Which is our transition into some history and facts. Kind of. So the books of Exodus and Deuteronomy were written while the Israelites were returning from their exile in Babylon. What does that mean? Great question. It means that these were recorded as a way of reestablishing codes and laws that helped connect themselves back to God. What do you do when you're stranded in a foreign country being constantly oppressed and put down? You eventually piece together your origin, history, and the what went wrong of it all. And you focus on what will get you right with God. You try to make sense of your history, your challenges, and your strengths. That is what a majority of the Old or First Testament is trying to do. It's trying to rebuild and reimagine a relationship after centuries of confusion and hardship. Here's a, a bit of a metaphor that maybe can help make this make more sense. Um, consider going through a really hard breakup. Not, don't consider it too hard if you've recently gone through one, but just like hold that idea loosely in your head. And, you know, sometimes you get to hang out with people or talk with your friends and try to figure out what went wrong, like how it all broke bad. And from there, you can kind of start to get some perspective and you know, t take what you can from that and learn for the next time. This is, of course, what happens after you ask your friends who are your yes people who tell you that you're perfect and your partner was the one who was clearly wrong. 
we, we, we go to them first and then we go to the people who can give us some of that perspective. So many of the commandments actually start with the reminder that God delivered the Israelites out of oppression in Egypt, which is a handy reminder to the Israelites who were writing these stories down during a different time of separation and oppression. Sin, as we can potentially understand it, keeps us separate from God. It puts distance between us. It's sometimes described in the Bible as an act of exile or separation. They did not want to continue to sin, and they did not want to continue to separate themselves from God's love. So they wrote down some rules to maintain their status with God and keep themselves in line. So the Ten Commandments are then followed by what's called the Book of the Covenant or the Covenant Code. You might know it as the list of how to sell your daughter as a slave or how to borrow an animal from your neighbor or my favorite, you shall not permit a female sorcerer to live. Regardless of their weirdness, these codes also serve as a reminder of their covenant or promise with God. God and Abraham each walked the covenant line according to scripture of the land and generations promised to Abraham's descendants. The covenant codes then act as a way of maintaining that connection with God. The Sabbath is then also a holy reminder of how powerful and sanctified rest should be. It is a reminder of a time when it was said that God made a promise to their chosen people that they would live a good life in a land flowing with milk and honey, which, you know, it, it just means that you could have goats that survive there and honey from nectar and flowers, and it would be like cultivatable <laughs> as a land to live on. So it seems like God wanted to make both their overall lives better and give them a weekly chance to rest and reflect on that. But we don't really treat that commandment as holy, right? We don't really treat it the same way as the ones that say don't murder or usually the one that says like don't cheat on your wife. Um, we dismiss it a little bit, right? As we like kind of like pick and choose around the different rules that we feel like following or that we feel like don't apply to us anymore. We kind of leave it be. The Sabbath or day of rest is actually the first thing to be blessed in the Bible. Yes, humans were called very good, uh, or as we've covered in previous sermons, they were made for their intended purpose, but they were not yet holy. Rest and resisting the urge to work and do more was. On the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. It's a repetitive poem, but, you know, the Hebrew word that is used in the creation stories that is translated to good is tov. And the Hebrew word that is used hundreds of times in different tenses throughout the Bible to mean holy is kadosh. Doing research on the different meanings of kadosh led me to an article by Dove Lando, a professor of Jewish literature at Bar Ilan University in Israel and one of the last living Holocaust survivors. We'll link his full essay below, but here's an observation he makes when trying to define kadosh. Rudolf Otto claims that the way we use the adjective sacred has been extended to apply to absolute good, morality, decency, uprightness, and truth, and that these are essentially rational. In contrast, the original primal meaning of sacred refers to a feeling which is utterly devoid of any theoretical rational component and is a category totally set apart, 
something which words cannot define. It is a spiritual condition or state of mind that a person might have, which can neither be defined nor explained. At best, we can bring the person to recognize the spiritual condition or state of mind in him or herself. We are dealing with a human spiritual state of festive elevation and excitement, a sense of elation, of being connected with the wondrous. Kadosh, then, is more than just kicking back on a Sunday or Saturday and vegging out. It's about connecting with something we can't even name. It's a sense of divine connection and the elation of creation. It's a chance to remind yourself of your tov, perhaps, to remind yourself of your role in the broader scope of things. And this is something we talk a lot about in the Biblet small group, how our like puny, tiny human words don't come close to describing the concept of God, the concept of divinity, of sacredness, of what is holy. Like no, none of our words come close to that, but it's, it's all we have to try to communicate these concepts and ideas. And we over intellectualize and overthink them and try to put them into boxes because that's what makes us feel comfortable. But like it, it's beyond all of that. And that is so hard to pin down and define. So getting the chance to dive more into what makes something good or holy takes more nuance. So here's a question. Do you take time to regularly connect with the wondrous? And does that feel like a silly task given everything else that's on your to-do list? Why? If you're interested in learning more about the Jewish perspective on the Sabbath, I highly recommend reading The Sabbath by Abraham Joshua Heschel. The whole book, I devoured it. It, fe it feels like a love letter or a poem to the Sabbath, but uh, I specifically want to call out one point that he makes. The Sabbath is not for the sake of the weekdays. The weekdays are for the sake of the Sabbath. It is not an interlude, but the climax of living. The resting is the point. Whatever you do for your job is immaterial. They matter so much less than the spirit you bring to your work. And your specific job matters so much less than the rest you are able to give yourself. Because taking time to rest can often give us space to think about why we work in the first place. Here's a parable that might explain it in a different way. And stop me if you've heard this one before. Someone came upon three men working on repairing an old church. They asked the first man what he was doing. And the man said he was laying bricks. They asked the second man the same question, and he said he was putting up a wall. When they got to the third man and asked him what he was doing, he said he was building a cathedral. He brought meaning to his work. I don't know how often we get to view our work as cathedral building. That opportunity <laughs> might not come very frequently for some of us, depending on our jobs, but... I have a hunch that we wouldn't even get to that point without the opportunity to rest and reflect. When we're in the middle of something challenging or a problem, it is so hard to understand the good that can come out of it. I know when I'm in the middle of like a panic or anxiety attack, remembering all the mantras and affirmations, it does not come naturally. My brain laughs at being able to use those in that moment. But I digress. I would argue, actually, that in the story of the Garden of Eden, when humanity was called upon to garden and raise livestock, there was a joy and a purpose to that work. I think things started to fall apart when they became aware of the possibility of pointlessness, 
of a lack of meaning. What was the point of resisting the specific fruit of one tree if God wasn't really going to kill them, according to the serpent? Who cares if they eat it then? Again, if we, if we view scripture from the time and place that it was written, likely throughout the period that the people of Israel established monarchy and were later banished via exile, this story can illuminate how these ancient writers viewed their origins. By disobeying the law of God, basically the only rule that living in the Garden of Eden had, they were no longer allowed to stay in their promised land. So we consider another law of God handed to the Israelites who were in need of structure and identity in a time of crisis. The concept of keeping Sabbath becomes very holy indeed. And as they later learned, by breaking more of those laws, literally, 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 they couldn't wait to make that golden calf. They were like, a, they had one job. <laughs> they had one job, just like the Adam and Eve story did. They had one thing that they weren't allowed to do, and they immediately wanted to do it. But it just, it, it goes to explain that that can lead to exile and distance from God and distance from the promise and reward that God had promised them. Creating their cultural narrative, the biblical writers were trying to explain how they had gotten into the mess they were in. And strictly following the laws given to them by God became their best theory about how to get their way back on track. When we read the Bible today, our culture is not currently in exile, uh, nor do we wish to live under a monarchy once more right now. Um, but those are like the main themes really of that first testament. So these rules and laws are allowed to mean different things to us today. And perhaps, though, we are trying to relieve the pressure put on us by the yoke of capitalism. Our oppression can look different now than it did in the lives of the ancient Israelites. And But this is the book that we have that we're basing a lot of our beliefs and structure around. These laws weren't written for us, nor were they intended to be a quite literal rule book for eternity. They get reinterpreted within the Jewish tradition, let alone the Christian tradition. So we need to interpret them differently. Our oppression today can look like being underpaid for your industry or paid less based on racist or other discriminatory factors. It can look like working long hours and not getting compensated for that. It can be a separation of our dreams from our jobs. It can be pressure from families to go into a certain field to continue to play into the capitalist hierarchy. The Sabbath, then, is an opportunity to practice finding Kadosh in our everyday lives. It gives us perspective and reminds us that we are more than the work we do when we're on the clock. It gives us a chance to connect with the sublime and the wondrous by simply participating in a sacred time and space. Who are we when we're not working? What kind of excitement do we get to foster in between shifts? Where can we connect with the feeling of awe again? You are more than your job or your lack of job. Employment is not the basis of your worth. And throwing everything away to pursue your passion and discover your own American dream is not the path for everyone. But I don't know how we should identify. But keeping our eyes and hearts focused on our stresses and labels at work doesn't seem like a very kadosh way of doing things. So... I think that's our challenge for this week or season and 
Not that we need something else to put on to our to-do list, but maybe we can start figuring out how else we could describe ourselves to someone we were meeting for the first time. And maybe that's figuring out how God would introduce us to them. How would they describe you? So thank you for a friend for listening to me babble about rest when this series is about work. Rest for us looks so different than it did six months ago, two months ago, a year ago. And it certainly looks different than it did for the ancient Israelites. But I think there's something there about tapping back into that and and reminding ourselves that we are not living to work. You know, we're living to connect somehow with with more divine energy than we can even put words to. (laughs) But, you know, I think that's what's amazing about connecting with other people and connecting with each other through the love of God is we all come at it from different perspectives, but we arrive at the same grace. So thank you for listening. And if you'll join me, I will close us out in prayer. (sighs) Dear God, dear creator, thank you for this opportunity to listen and learn today and to pause Help us find that pause button more often. And even if we don't have the words to describe it, help us feel that elation and joy. Help us rediscover what our identities might be. And God, help us continue to connect and lift up one another because that seems to be what feeds our spirits the most. We pray this in your name. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Forefront Sermon Podcast. To learn more about Forefront and how we're ushering in the next 500 years of Christianity, visit ForefrontChurch.com.